It's time to get inside the Giants huddle. Let's go back to your huddle. On Giants.com. Tempo, tempo, tempo. And the Giants mobile app. Go, 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 part go. Part of the Giants podcast network. Yeah. Welcome to the Giants huddle. I'm Paul Dottino, and we are joined by a very special guest, Rich Podolsky, who is the author of You're Looking Live, a book which really kind of breaks the barriers from the old CBS NFL Today program that really was the precursor to every kind of live pregame show that you see today in sports television. You can always see the uh, Giants huddle on our YouTube channel and as well as getting all the audio on our Giants mobile app and our website at Giants.com. And Rich, uh, the people out there, I don't think they truly understand how this particular program changed the entire landscape of what we are seeing today. Well, we, we have to go back to the 1970s. The NFL today, as we know it, started in 1975. Before that, there were only three channels. There was no cable. ESPN was still six years away. There was no uh, CNN news cycle. There was no internet. There was no way to get even scores unless you had an AP ticker in your house. The networks didn't give scores, uh, score updates in a timely fashion. You couldn't even get highlights at halftime of CBS games. The only highlights you would see is of the game you were watching. You know, uh, uh, videotape was only a little more than a decade old. Uh, so these, these really were the old, old days of sports television. And then a guy named Bob Wessler came along. Bob Wessler had run the CBS News special unit with Walter Cronkite. He did uh, so many great events uh, for them, and he was a, uh, a terrific uh, executive and a producer, and he knew what he thought the public would want. And he, uh, first thing he did is he converted the show to live. He made it live previous to 75, uh, the only thing that was live were the games themselves. All the pregame shows were taped days before. In fact, on Thursday night, uh, they would tape them. Jack Whitaker and uh, Lee Leonard were the hosts in 1974. And uh, when uh, the, the producer in 74, Bill Fitz, tried to do highlights, Jack Whitaker, it, just, it, it was too fast for him. They couldn't get it done until one weekend Whitaker was away on assignment they brought a, a guy named Brent somebody in from Chicago, Brent Musburger, and he thought he was a kid in a candy store. It was easy as heck for him, and they knew Brent was going to be the future of uh, uh, doing highlights and hosting the show. When Wessler came in in 75 as the new president of CBS Sports, he brought a guy named Michael Pearl to be his live producer from Miami, a great producer. He brought in Brent to run the show uh, from uh, uh, the uh, situation of being the cog uh, on the table there. And he decided that we needed a woman on the show. Wessler said that it, TV sports was becoming a male ghetto. And he thought there was room for a woman to bring the women into, into uh, the audience. And he also wanted to have an African-American co-host, and that became Irv Cross. 
You know, I think, Rich, when I look back at it, and I think the title of your book is really so appropriate because you had the live whip around, which Brent was so good at introducing using your catchphrase. You had the live personalities that were now interacting on the desk. I mean, the, these, plus, of course, the mixture of, of the, the characters that you're talking about. We didn't even get to Jimmy the Greek yet. So we're talking about significant changes that today, I mean, holy moly, we've got whip around coverage everywhere you can see, including Red Zone. We've got mixtures of personalities on every desk you can find in every form of television, entertainment and sports. And, you know, we've also got, you know, the the uh, the I don't want to say the uh, diversification isn't necessarily the right word. But the, the way that they cover it so that it's more entertaining, as well as just giving you the X's and O's of sports, I guess, broadening the scope of what they were trying to do. I mean, heck, we might even have a pregame show for the NFL release of the schedule coming up sometime soon. That's how crazy this has all exploded. Which do you believe is the most important innovation of all the different things that the NFL today did? Wow, that's a tough one, Paul. Um, I, I would say that um, let me think about that for a little bit. And I'll come back to you with. I, I tell you what. I tell you what I'll do. Instead of making me uh, get one from you, do you think that there are three that would be all tied together and say these three would be the three that we could not we could not ignore the NFL today for? Well, I, I think going live was tremendously significant. I think adding a a, a person of color and and a woman was light years ahead of the rest of the television world. I mean, Wessler grew up in a community in uh, New Jersey, and he, it, was, it was kind of a mafia-run uh, community, and he saw a lot of the ills of society. And he wanted to do this to make things available for the rest, rest of the world. You know, before 1975, uh, Besides it not being live, the only hosts were middle-aged white men of these pregame shows, you know, and having Phyllis George on. Phyllis George, for, for those of you who are under the age of 50, was a Miss America in 1971. She was vivacious. She, she was next door beautiful, but she was approachable. You know, she, she didn't wear a lot of makeup. She was somebody you would want to sit down and have a drink with. She was fun. Um, and America just took to her right away. Uh, she had previous TV experience on a show called Candid Camera in New York. Sure. Uh, with a guy named Alan Funt. But she didn't like playing second banana to Alan Funt. And she got her chance with Bob Wessler. And uh, Wessler really had tremendous confidence in her. And Irv Cross, Irv Cross was already the first uh, African-American doing uh, analysis on games for the C CBS network, uh, but he wasn't doing games back to New York. So the New York audience wasn't really that familiar with him, except as an ex-player with the Eagles. Uh, Irv, Irv, Go ahead. Irv Cross met Bob Wessler at the uh, Super Bowl eight. CBS was doing the game at the pregame luncheon. And uh, Wessler asked Irv Cross, 
what he thought was going to happen in the game. Well, Irv had spoken to both quarterbacks the day before privately, and he knew what was going to happen in the game. And he told Wessler what the game plan was. And when it turned out that way with the Dolphins winning so convincingly after the game, Wessler grabbed Herb Cross and said, look, we're going to do this show next year, and I want you to be a part of it. And uh, that that's how that came to be. Uh, as far as the phrase, you are looking live, in the, one of the very first production meetings, uh, Bob Fishman, who was the director, said uh, in the meeting, which in, in Including Michael Pearl, the producer, and uh, Phyllis and Brent and Irv, they were talking about how to open the show, and uh, and Fishman said, "Well, I've got some buddies that like to bet on the games, and they always want to know what the weather is." And uh, CBS was already doing kind of a whip around, showing the different stadiums, and Brent said in this meeting. Uh, that was real early in 1975. Brent said, well, when we do that whip around, I could say, you are looking live at Soldier Field in Chicago, where today Walter Payton and the <coughs> Chicago Bears, et cetera, and you are looking live at Vet Stadium. And, and as soon as he said you are looking live, it was as if everyone had just seen the Mona Lisa for the first time. They knew it was perfect. It gives you goosebumps just thinking about it, Rich, to be honest. And, you know, I think Brent, we, we, we know of his journalistic background, and you go into it very deeply in the book. Uh, he just was the right guy. I'm not sure if the show had gone in another direction and taken somebody else. And, and let's make it clear. There have been some great studio hosts. Bob Costas and Jim McKay come to mind pretty quickly. And Brian Bumble. You know, but Brent, Brent was the right guy for that job. Exactly. He was, he was so much the right guy. Uh, the the uh, strange thing about Brent was nobody really knew him. He was a, a guy from Chicago. <clears throat> he had done a few games for CBS the year before as a play-by-play -play guy. Uh, and he, I think he had hosted a sports spectacular or two, but he was, he was pretty much unknown. And he says this himself. And he comes in and he runs the show uh, as if he was uh, the man in charge for a decade already. And as far as saying you are looking live, he said that at the beginning of every show for the next 15 years. And then the following year, as you brought up, they brought in Jimmy the Greek uh, to make the gamblers happy and, and add a little spice to the show. And uh, Bob Wessler had tremendous, tremendous chutzpah to do this. I mean, the NFL and Pete Rozelle, at least outwardly, were dead set against gambling and didn't want any mention of point spreads on the show. I remember, Rich, when, when the Greek came on, they used to have this big board. And Brett would be on one side and Jimmy the Greek would be on the other side. And you would see these different categories that, mm -hmm. that Jimmy had picked out, right, for the game. And then he would have a check mark. And let's say there'd be a check mark on the San Francisco side or a check mark on the Dallas side, depending upon, you know, what he thought of each of the categories. And then he would say, well, I think they'll win, you know, rather handedly. And he had to be very careful about, you know, not specifically getting too detailed in his comments. 
He, um, yeah, I, I, he had 18 categories, and uh, uh, I knew Jimmy very well. I, since I was a writer on the show back in 1977. <clears throat> I'm much older than I look. So, <laughs> but uh, he had, of the 18 categories, he thought team speed was probably the most important one. Uh, and uh, when Jimmy came to his conclusion, he would say, I think they'll win by a touchdown, or I think they'll win by a field goal. Or sometimes he would say, what does the golfer say when he hits it out of bounds? He yells, four! <laughs> and they had fun with it, you know? And in the beginning, you know, uh, Brent and, and Jimmy had a great time doing this segment, and they really got along well. And Brent uh, uh, was interested in the gambling part of it, and he knew, as well as Bob Wessler and Pete Rozelle knew that bringing more gamblers to the to the show and to the NFL would only increase the audience. And it did increase the audience tremendously. I mean, the NFL today was an incredible hit its first year. It won an unfathomable 13 Emmy Awards in 1975. And it really helped increase the audience for uh, NFL games and helped the NFL overtake baseball as America's favorite sport. I think when Jimmy came to the show, I mean, we all knew that he had a, a legendary niche following uh, with with the, the gambling community. But when he came to the show, he was very gregarious. You know this. He was quite the personality. And and I think he added a whole nother level of of I don't know. Ne- I don't necessarily want to say humor, but it was just fun to watch him, even if look, I was a kid in those days. I didn't know anything about point spreads or gambling, but I enjoyed watching Jimmy because you knew he was going to be very colorful in his presentation. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, he uh, he was extremely colorful. He, he was probably the best known of the four of them, including Phyllis George, who had won Miss America and had co-hosted uh, many Miss America shows after that with Burt Parks. Uh, but Jimmy was really well known. He was syndicated in 300 newspapers across the country. And uh, these papers, uh, that was the only way they could get point spreads. So uh, it, it became very popular. The Greek wrote a column with uh, the point spreads, uh, a guy named Hank Goldberg, who was a TVJ uh, sports uh, director in, down in Miami. He ghosted the column for many years for the Greek, and uh, the Greek was well known. Funny thing about how that came about, the Greek was very, very successful going back to the 40s. He had won over a million dollars in 1948 betting on Harry Truman, who uh, was a 20 to 1 underdog to be Governor Dewey of New York for the presidency. Uh, The Greek uh, uh, was growing a mustache, and his sister said, shave that off, it reminds me of Hitler. And the next thing he did is he looked at the front page of the paper and he saw a picture of Dewey with his mustache and he thought, man, this guy can lose. He did a little research. He thought it was an even money bet. And he went to New York at Lindy's where they serve cheesecake where all the bookies hung out with David Runyon. And he bet $50,000 getting 20 to one odds. 
and he, wow. he was a millionaire when a million dollars was a lot of money. He went to Vegas. He opened up some of his own book, uh, bookmaking shops. And uh, when RFK, when the Kennedys came in, Bobby Kennedy tried to go after uh, Sam Giancana and the mafia. He had no success. He decided to make a name for himself by going after Jimmy the Greek. And he uh, got Jimmy for talking about the, the over the interstate lines. He did a phone call with a friend in Utah who wanted to know the line on the Utah-Utah State game. And that's how he lost his gambling license. He had to start all over. He walked into the Las Vegas Sun and he said, I'll, I'll write this column for, th for free. If you don't like it, get rid of me. If you like it, pay me and we'll syndicate it. And uh, he, became, he, he renewed his vigor and he became famous all over again. And in fact, he started a public relations firm where Howard Hughes was his big client uh, because Hughes owned all the big hotels in Vegas. You alluded to earlier uh, about uh, how you had written for CBS Sports. I uh, mentioned in your book, in the biography, a handful of years you wrote for CBS, for the network. Also prior to that, a very lengthy career, very well established and respected career as, as a sports writer, covered the Dolphins for a while, I saw. Yes. So, you know, I, I can't even imagine how you must have even felt as someone who was part of that NFL culture and establishment you know, Greek was becoming this huge superstar for something that was so, you know, in the dark in terms of the way the NFL would recognize it. And now here it is today where it's not only out there, but it's also sponsoring the National Football League. I mean, you must be shaking your head. And I think Jimmy the Greek Snyder would be absolutely going bonkers today. It's it's unbelievable, you know, and, and, and you know, I got to wonder – uh, turning turning the tables on baseball. I mean, every inning there's an ad from DraftKings or FanDuel, and you got you got to wonder how is Pete Pete Rose not eligible for the Hall of Fame, <laughs> you know? But but going back to Jimmy the Greek, I, I mean, man, uh, when he came in, it it was really it shook up a lot of people. They were shocked. They, you know, Wessler went out on a limb. And he, he knew he had the equity from all his successes at CBS. Before he came to CBS Sports, he had turned uh, WBBM around in Chicago from the number four station in news to the number one. They loved him at CBS. So they let him do whatever he wanted to do. And bringing the Greek in and, and faintly, faintly talking about point spreads, I mean, Roselle had gone on the record in front of Congress saying that he thought only 2% of the audience actually bet on the games. That's how much Congress was worried about it. And when Bino Cook heard about this, Bino Cook was then a publicist for CBS Sports. When Bino Cook heard about this, he said, if that's true, they all live on my block. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let, let's take it back for a second to the time. We're talking about the mid-70s, early to mid-70s. Right. And you and I both know, Rich, at that point, baseball was king here in, in the States. It was America's pastime. Baseball was by far the number one professional sports draw. And I truly believe that the NFL today and the popularity of that program and getting people pumped up for the games 
and making it a Sunday tradition was one of the reasons why the NFL started to quickly gain ground. And now, as we've seen now for a better part of the last decade or so, it is the most popular sport in America. Yeah, exactly right, uh, Paul. You know, like I said, the NFL today's popularity was off the charts. Uh, People uh, in the Midwest, in the heartland, were rearranging their church-going schedules so they didn't miss Jimmy the Greek or Phyllis George interviewing the athletes. I mean, when Phyllis George asked Roger Staubach how he thought he, he compared to Joe Namath, I mean, Staubach threw that amazing line at her and said, you know, Joe likes to have uh, sex with a lot of girls. I just have sex with one and I'm just as happy with it. You know, and nobody could believe that, you know, and Phyllis got these guys to say things that they would never say to a sports writer, you know, or if they had sent Irv Cross, you know, they sent Irv Cross to talk to the coaches about the game plans and NFL films helped produce uh, the segments, Uh, they were terrific segments, but the show was enormously popular. It forced NBC to start its own pregame show, which it had Jack Buck doing, which Jack was a great play-by-play guy, but he wasn't really the studio host. And before the end of the year, they brought in Brian Gumbel as as the host, who was a, a tremendous asset for them. And then eventually Bob Costas. Uh, and then, you know, they had their own version of the Greek uh, with Pete Axelm at NBC. Sure. So it just expanded the universe of fans watching uh, the NFL. And it was, you know, the NFL people just loved it in those days. It was so exciting and it was kind of so new still. Why do you think that NBC, which had the old AFL and then the AFC package, did not come up with the thought to do what CBS did? Well, I, I don't know, to be exact. I, I, I'm really not sure about that, but they didn't have to. You know, they, they probably felt they didn't have to. Um, I, I can't think of any other excuse at the time. Maybe they didn't feel they had the personnel to do it. Um, but, you know, CBS started their pregame show back in the 60s uh, with uh, Johnny Lujak and then three ex-Giants were running the pregame show, Frank Gifford and Kyle Road and Pat yep. Summerall. I mean, they took turns from uh, the mid-60s all the way up to 1973, uh, Summerall was doing it with uh, Whitaker. And th- those were the shows that were pre-taped. Now, back in 1970, the show was called The NFL Today. And then it wasn't called that again until 1975. It was called The NFL Report, The NFL on CBS. Uh, we, they had different names for it, but uh, it was really hard for them to go live uh, at, back in those years. Now, Rich, I want you to clarify, if you can, for me, because as you mentioned, Gifford, Summerall, they were some of the hosts, Jack Whitaker, Pryor. Um, if if Brent Musburger had not been such a hit when they brought him in to do the show, is it possible that Summerall would have stayed in studio and not become 
the legendary play-by-play man and voice of the NFL that he became because I, I was kind of under the impression, if I understood the timeline in your book correctly, that you know when Musburger was able to come in uh, and, and Whitaker had, had kind of been phased out, Summerall wound up going to the play-by-play booth. Yeah, that, that's correct. I don't think that they would have made Summerall the uh, host of the NFL today because Bob Wessler had come in in uh, mid-1974 as the president of CBS Sports, and Musburger was his sports director in Chicago, and he knew how talented Musburger was. I mean, Jim Nance, who wrote a, a beautiful foreword for this book, said that Musburger is the greatest studio host of all time. And, and who's going to challenge that? Musburger was unbelievable. You know, and to me, when, when Brent left CBS and went to ABC, and he, for the most part, only did uh, play-by-play uh, duties, the shame of it was he never got to host another studio show, which he was unbelievably great at. Uh, Tim Brando, who was the first host of Game Day on ESPN, said that the term studio chemistry was created by Brent and Irv. They were so great doing uh, highlights and analysis together. Brent was just unbelievable. And, you know, for 15 years, he did that like he was uh, reading uh, uh, the Star Spangled Banner off a sheet of paper. It was the easiest thing in the world. He was such a natural at it. In fact, the natural was what Van Gordon Sauter, his former boss, called him. If I understand correctly, Rich, one of the things I, I noticed in your book was that there was influence from Howard Cosell doing the live halftime highlights on Monday Night Football, and that was kind of one of the reasons that they incorporated that into into the uh, studio show with, with the NFL Today. Is that right? That That's correct. I think CBS was embarrassed that here it was, uh, 1970, 71. Uh, Monday Night Football started in 1970. All, all from 70 through 74, the only way you could see highlights, I mean, imagine this, you're sitting at home and you, you see the scores of the other games, but you can't see a highlight of it. There's no YouTube to go to to find it. There, there's no uh, midnight shows of sports recap. There's no ESPN. You've got to wait until halftime of Monday Night Football when Howard Cosell came on with a, about a five-minute package of uh, special plays from the games on the night day before that NFL films have put together for him, you know, and Cosell was great hosting those, you know, voicing those, those highlights. And in fact, some, they would get letters from people from cities and uh, teams that were pissed off that their teams weren't included in the Monday night halftime package, <laughs> you know? So, CBS, Bob, Bill Fitz was the producer of uh, the pregame show for CBS. And in fact, he was the executive producer in those days. And he was trying to find a way to get halftime highlights in. And he tried like heck in 1974 when he tried to go live with Whitaker. And he said it, the, the pace of trying to get the highlights up to Jack, it was just too fast for Jack. He said Jack was a great announcer. 
a great play-by-play guy, a great writer, a great essayist, but this was not his cup of tea. Yeah, true. In truth, I mean, I remember after when Brent took the the host's job, Jack used to do a commentary on the show for several years. And, and, you know, he was very studious, very buttoned down, almost, I I don't want to necessarily say the voice of God, because we all give that to John Facenda. But I believe for people who don't know, and they're too young to remember what Jack Whitaker was, he was like the elder statesman who would just give you the perspective that you needed, uh, you know, to kind of put everything in its proper context. He was the class, really the class of, of CBS Sports. And for so many years uh, before 1975, he was the face of CBS Sports. Um, do you have time for a story about yeah. how that came to CBS? Sure. Jack, Jack Whitaker was doing... Uh, uh, he was doing radio when he got out of uh, uh, the army after uh, World War II uh, for a small station in uh, upstate Pennsylvania. And he walked into the newsroom one day in 1950, and uh, there was uh, audio of Ben Hogan's um, U.S. Open at Murrian. And it wasn't radio. It was a newfangled invention called television. And Whitaker saw that and he said to himself, here, I've been interviewing the mayor and the pastor of this town once a week. You know, I got to get get to Philadelphia and try to get on television. And he went to WCAU in Philadelphia, where he had uh, gone to St. Joseph's College and he interviewed for the job and the sports guy had just quit. And they said, do you know anything about sports? And he said, that's when I made my big mistake by saying yes. (laughs) And he became, uh, along with Ed McMahon, the the two really big stars of CBS in Philadelphia, WCAU. Ed McMahon had come there from the Army as well. I'm sorry, from the Marines. And McMahon was doing essays on the show. Facenda would would do the, the news. Whitaker would do the sports and uh, McMahon would do uh, the editorials and, and interviews uh, with local celebrities. And McMahon and Whitaker were, were great pals. And then the CBS network buys WCAU and decides to cut it from a 30 minute newscast back to 15 minutes. They get rid of McMahon's editorials. They get rid of Whitaker's sports, no sports. And they may have Whitaker doing the weather. Jack Whitaker was not wow. a weatherman. Was not a weatherman. And McMahon and <laughs> McMahon and Whitaker thought they were going to be out of a job any day now. And they started taking the train in the mornings from Philadelphia to New York, and and went to the advertising agencies that really cast people on the shows. And they go, tried to get jobs at the network. Well, McMahon got a job as the co-host of a. Uh, uh, a game show called Who Do You Trust? Whitaker got a job as uh, an analyst for the CBS network for NFL games. Who Do You Trust oh. was hosted by some guy named Johnny Carson. And when Johnny Carson got the Tonight Show, he took McMahon along with him. Mc, uh, Whitaker was so good 
doing the games for CBS. They asked him to do CBS Sports Spectacular. They asked him to do horse racing. And all of a sudden he was on the staff and he didn't need WCAU anymore. But that's how Whitaker got to CBS. And he was the most important guy at CBS Sports. Uh, and then Summerall came along and Frank Gifford came along and they had an incredible lineup. It's incredible how the spider web intertwines so many of these jobs and these names and these personalities. You know, it's funny, too. We mentioned earlier about Summerall, how his fate wound up turning and becoming a play-by-play guy and the voice of the NFL. Frank Gifford, many people nowadays don't remember that he was with CBS. They used to call him the men from Maritech because guys like Rote and Summerall and Gifford and Diragatis we're all stepping off of the football field with the Giants and becoming sportscasters on television and radio. And of course, Gifford, I mean, I don't know, was there ever a chance that he could have been a staple at CBS instead of winding up over at ABC where he became part of their Olympics and Monday night football coverage? Well, he was a staple at CBS early uh, on, but early on and Bill McPhail, who was then uh, the president of CBS sports he loved Gifford, and he gave him his blessing when Bruno Eilich wanted to hire him away to do Monday Night Football. He couldn't – McPhail could not offer Gifford anything close to that in, in the way of um, a big game assignment. Uh, they were already set with their big game announcers. So uh, Gifford was their studio guy, and it, it was a great chance for Gifford. And yeah, I think it, it worked out well for him to go to ABC. <laughs> now, a, qu- a quick story about Bill McPhail. Bill McPhail was the president of CBS Sports for si- 17 years before uh, uh, he retired and they brought Bob Wessler in. Uh, but in 1970, uh, when he was the president and Bill Fitz was producing the NFL today, Bill Fitz had a woman by the name of Marjorie Margolis uh, producing – uh, features for the, the pregame show. And she was even uh, the, the face and the voice of some of these features on the show. She was really the first woman on the NFL today. She had come from WCAU as well. And she had done the first two or three weeks uh, feature stories and she knew her stuff. She was pretty good. <clears throat> and uh, one morning, uh, McPhail calls Bill Fitz in his office and says, uh, this Margolis woman, she can continue producing, but we've got somebody else who's going to do the announcing of, or, uh, of these uh, features. And he said, who's that? And he said, the Winston Cigarette Girl. And he said, who? Oh, the Winston Cigarette Girl is a friend of Frank Giffords. She's out of a job because you can't advertise cigarettes on TV anymore. Now, this, right. this woman... Uh, I, her name uh, skips my mind at the set, this moment, but she had done a spot. She was very uh, sexy brunette. She had done a spot called Me and My Winstons. It was a song and dance number. And uh, she, she was very popular. And uh, Gifford uh, knew her husband, who was also an executive at CBS. And that's how she got the job. Margolis uh, and she were, became so popular with the press that the New York Times did a feature on them and so did TV Guide. And uh, Margolis was quoted as saying, well, we're doing these so the women 
don't just sit there and knit while their husbands watching the game or open beer cans for their husbands. <laughs> Rich Podolsky, you're looking live is the name of the book. This has been such a thrill. Before we go, I'd yeah, like to I'm ask that you could hold up so the people could see it. There you go. There you go. We could see it there in the camera. Thank you. Could you kindly give us if there's just one favorite memory you have, and there are so many in the book, you put so much time and effort into it. And I can't tell you how much I thank you because I grew up with that program. And so it just took me back. The smiles on my faces, as my face, as I continued to read page by page, was rather wide. So you really did me a tremendous amount of, uh, of good to, uh, to put this book together. But is there a favorite memory of all, one, one scene, one show, one instance that, that you would like people to know years from now that they could just like hold on to? In 1980, um, the Greek had been on CBS Sports for five years now. And uh, Brent and uh, the producers were getting a little tired of his quote unquote inside information. It all seemed to be coming from his pal, Al Davis. And on, on the set, that's all he talked about was Al Davis. And they were, they were a little tired of it. Um, but on this one particular day in October of 1980, the Greek had uh, a news flash that nobody else had. And it was really uh, a big deal. Notre Dame was going to fire Dan Devine and hire Jerry Faust, a high school coach from Akron, Ohio, when the season was over. Nobody else had it. The Greek was gonna come on his segment called The Greek's Grapevine and tell this little piece of news. And he was gonna get some pretty good publicity out of it, he thought. When it led into it, the lead in, Brent was usually said, would say something like, what do you got for us today, Greek? Well, instead, on this day, Brent blurted out the Greeks' news and left the Greek kind of flat-footed. Uh, Hank Goldberg said it left the Greek as if he was Ralph Cramden from the old honeymooner days saying, humana, humana, humana. He didn't know what to say, and he, he was kind of embarrassed. And the Greek was already upset with Brent and the producers for not getting enough airtime on the show. And now his one big moment gets taken away. That night, everybody used to go to a place called Pear Trees, a restaurant and bar on the Upper East Side in New York. Actually, it was at 50th and First Avenue in New York. And uh, that night, for some reason, Brent showed up there with his brother and the Greek showed up there as well. They wound up at the same table. The Greek kept complaining. Ted Shaker, the producer, was there. And Shaker said that when, Brent, when uh, the Greek kept bitching about airtime and what he did to him that day, Brent, who had, uh, they had all had too many cocktails, Brent said, <clears throat> I can make you disappear anytime I want Greek. And Greek with that gave him a slap or a punch, depending on who you listen to. Uh, I, I was not there at that moment. I didn't hear that, but that's what Ted Shaker told me. He thought he said, and uh, the, it, the Ballyhoo was on, everybody grabbed everybody. 
there was only one punch thrown. Uh, Kevin O'Malley, the executive, said it was a one-punch nothing burger. But it wound up on the front pages. It wound up in the Washington Post. And then uh, 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 Gordon Sauter, who was the president of CBS Sports, a lot of people thought he was the one who leaked it because he was looking for the ratings the following week. And uh, I wrote that show uh, the following Sunday, and we started out uh, ringing a bell as if it was a fight, and uh, everybody had boxing gloves. <laughs> that was my favorite moment in the book. Oh, I was in round one. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if you want to read about the rest of the 14 rounds, hold it up again, Rich Podolsky. You are looking live. It is a fantastic read through the entire creation of CBS Sports' NFL Today. It has had so much influence on everything we do when we watch the National Football League and, quite frankly, even other facets of television. Rich, it has been a joy to speak with you. We hope to see you out at MetLife Stadium. Make sure you say hello, and we wish you the best of luck with the publication. Just let me know what what, what uh, window you're leaving the tickets at. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, Rich. Be well. Rich Podolsky here on the Giants Huddle. You can catch this show at our entire odd, our, our archive of New York Giants podcasts on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app and podcast platforms everywhere. Until next time, I'm Paul Dottino. We'll see you then. <laughs>